For decades, the Vietnam War has been a Hollywood obsession. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, First Blood. These were blockbuster films, embraced by audiences and critics alike. And for decades, they've helped us understand a painful war and understand each other. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery, and this is Do We Get to Win This Time? How Hollywood Made the Vietnam War. Listen on the Big Picture feed. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Thursday, August 17th. No disrespect to Blue Beetle and Strays, but we've pretty much wrapped up the big summer movies. So we can begin to assess how they ultimately performed at the box office. For instance, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is finishing its global rollout, and it's at about $525 million a lot smaller than what Paramount expected, especially since Tom Cruise's last movie, Top Gun Maverick, basically tripled that. But will Mission Impossible lose money? That's a tougher question. After all, it carried a huge $300 million production budget between 100 and 200 million in marketing costs. Theaters take roughly half the box office, though those splits can vary. So the easy math suggests that Mission will be a loser. But that's not the whole calculus, of course. Profitability is a tougher question in movies, and it's getting tougher these days. Most of the media often gets it wrong. There's all kinds of ways that movies make money, especially high-profile movies. It's called The Waterfall, and includes everything from pay-per-view to international TV. Back when I was a lawyer, I represented talent in profit disputes with studios, and we would study exactly how much money was earned throughout the waterfall, what fees and expenses the studios charged against that revenue. It would often explain why a movie that seemed like a hit in theaters was deemed unprofitable by the studio, and it very often showed that movies that might have broken even or even lost money in theaters ended up in the black thanks to these ancillary revenue streams. So today I want to explain all this using my good friend Tom Cruise's movie as a guide. We've got a guest who is very familiar with how movies make their money. John Mass is the president of Content Partners, which is a business that buys out profit participations on movies and TV shows. That means that if you're a filmmaker or anyone who's entitled to a cut of revenue, John will pay you a bunch of money now to take over that revenue stream. He knows exactly what money is coming in and how a movie like Mission Impossible can sputter in theaters, yet make millions more from the waterfall. So today, it's how movies actually make money, and why a bomb might not end up being a bomb. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with John Mass, who is president of Content Partners, a company that I don't think a lot of people, even in the business, realize exists. So first of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. So explain for us, just for the basic kindergartner here, what you guys do. 
Well, we were started back in 2006, and the idea was to create a secondary market of sorts for content uh, or film and television talent participations. For years, talent participations or contingent compensation, profit participation, has been uh, doled out as a part of paying writers, directors, actors, producers. But there was no real secondary market for those people, the, the talent, to monetize it. They'd wait for the money to come in, and there was no way to accelerate it. Unlike the music business, for instance, where there was a market for people buying and selling those rights. Right. So so it means that if you are Joe Ryder and you were on a hit show in the 90s, 2000s, and you have money coming to you based on your back-end participation, you guys will go to those writers and say, hey, we'll pay you X amount up front and take that off your hands. And if you want the money now, you can have it and we'll take over the participation. Yes. You get absolute certainty today. You know exactly how much you're getting and you get the actual use of that money as opposed to waiting for it to come in over your lifetime. Right. Or the, or the estate. I mean, I, I imagine right. this is popular with older people who don't want their relatives to have to deal with this and audit and do exactly. all that other stuff. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of estate planning comes into play when people contact us, but our business has evolved over time to where we work with a lot of institutional investors, people who have invested in the film and television business and also look for liquidity. So when a library is being sold or uh, a studio is being sold, we might get in the middle of that and uh, buy it. So for instance, we own 50% of the CSI TV series, you know, nine, almost oh, that's 900 a good episodes. One. Yeah. And we own that with CBS as our partner, great partner distributor of the content. And we are their partner going forward. We also own Revolution Studios, Joe Roth's company, and a number of other you know libraries. So why I love you as someone to talk to is you know where all the money is made. And because of your business, you follow the money from inception all the way through the waterfall to the ultimates. And that's what I want to talk about today because there's such misconception out there. And sometimes I do shows where it's just like I see things in the media that annoy me and I want to correct them. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those where like you see all these people talking about how this movie is not profitable and this movie's a bomb and this movie's a hit. And it's really based on a superficial understanding of how money is made in the movie business. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into it today with real examples from this summer and particularly let's use mission impossible which i think is the one that people have focused on because if you look at these superficial numbers this is a movie that cost about 300 million dollars it was uh, a very expensive movie especially uh, because of covid and it grossed about 525 so far it may make a little bit more but we're coming up on five six weeks of being out in theaters so it's 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 rounding out its run and if you do the math, you factor in the marketing costs, it looks like this movie will probably not make money, probably be a bomb. But if you look at the overall waterfall, it's less clear. So let's let's start with theatrical exhibition here. Mm -hmm. How does a movie make money in theatrical exhibition? Well, the studio will rent essentially what's called rentals. They'll rent it to the theater owners and they negotiate that rate. So over a period of time that it's in movie theaters, the rate changes. It's in the favor of the studio early on. They have leverage. So early on- I've heard up be... to 80% of the opening weekend can go to the studio. Absolutely. It depends on how much in demand that title is to a studio and they'll pay more upfront in rentals. And then as it goes on, so something like Oppenheimer or Barbie, which we think will have a really long run in theaters, multiple pe people going multiple times, 
um, that'll be extended and that work in favor of the theater owners where the split, the rental gets gets closer to 50 percent. But early on, it could be as much as 80 percent. That's why the theaters love things like Barbenheimer, because they're getting more of the money the longer it's in theaters and doing well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, All right. So. People say it averages out to about half. That's probably not totally correct, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's say you get about half the money from theaters. Um, Then let's take it from there. Where does the movie go and how does it make money from there? Well, there's a lot of different revenue streams that come in. So let's talk about what historically had happened. I think people lose sight of this, but the DVD business, when it was a big business, a big part of the business and sort of drove revenues and, you know, bought a lot of people, their homes and second homes in town. It generated about $20 billion a year at its peak. It's an amazing number. Now it generates probably less than a billion dollars. Okay. So 20 billion to a billion, but it's been replaced with things like EST or PVOD or TVOD. EST is is electronic sell-through. That's when you buy a movie on iTunes or one of those kinds of uh, platforms. Mm -hmm. PVOD is premium video on demand, meaning it is in the the Amazon store or the Comcast uh, pay-per-view store where you pay 20 bucks to rent it for the weekend. Right. So I think from a waterfall perspective, for some of your listeners thinking about it, I like to think about the waterfall is like, what is all, where's all the water coming from? So we got theatrical, we have EST, we have PVOD, TVOD, SVOD, which is obviously the streaming services, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. You have the premiums, the HBO showtimes that work on cable. You have other television, linear television. There is a lot of different um, formats or windows that occur over time as a movie comes out that generate the water that becomes part of the waterfall that is going to come off that. that. But going to those first at-home windows, mm-hmm. the electronic sell-through and premium video on demand, what can a big-budget summer movie expect to make in those windows? Well, a, a, a lot of... It's hard to say, right? Mm-hmm. I, I actually think... you know, Can we continue? Let's continue using Dead Reckoning as an example. Sure, yep. You know, it's sort of like... Uh, it's like Mark Twain, you know, news of my death is greatly over- exaggerated, whatever the, I'm going to paraphrase sure. it, but like, <laughs> it's a big movie that has a big star and big cast. It's got a big brand behind it in Mission Impossible. And there are six of them that preceded it and a seminal sort of TV series from the 60s and 70s that's out there. So people are going to find that movie on uh, in digital form, whatever that may be, EST, PVOD, SVOD, whatever it might be. Because the metadata that supports it, all those people and all that knowledge and the recommendation engines will find it. For whatever reason, people did not go to see that movie. Did they already see a Tom Cruise movie because of Top Gun Maverick? Were there other choices out there? Were the reviews not good enough? You know, who knows? Was the marketing not good enough? I, I don't know. But people are going to find that movie. And I think it will perform very well because it's Tom Cruise. And historically, his movies have performed extremely well in television. I, I use television as this, sure. You know, all, all the windows combined. But does that and and the split obviously is much better for the studio on these home video platforms. Right. I've heard what is it, eighty percent, seventy, eighty percent that they get, and then there's a cut that goes to the platform 
that it's available on? Right. It depends on what we're talking about. So EST, using an EST mm-hmm. example, depending on who you are and what studio and the kind of leverage, it could be 95 to 5, right? As a oh, split. wow. It okay. could be as much. But it's usually closer to 85-15. Okay. And uh, it all depends on what the rate card is, who you're dealing with, what the movie is, who has leverage in it. But it, it's it's certainly well in favor of the studio. And so if it does really well, it could generate an incredible amount of money. Now, like a hundred million bucks, like 50 million. What are we talking here for a big summer movie? I know it varies, but, but I, I there... think it really varies, but it, it's probably closer to 50 than a hundred, but it all okay. depends on the movie. And remember it's a cum- accumulation over time. What we also have the benefit of, I'm not sure exactly what the PNA was on dead reckoning, but it's probably a couple hundred million dollars, right? That, yeah, that's what I've I'm heard thinking. 150. That's the marketing cost. Yeah. So the that means that it's creating an incredible amount of awareness. Now, those people didn't respond theatrically, go to the theaters, but they are going to be aware of it when it pops up on their recommendation engines sure. or on their screen and go and watch it. Yeah. And that's, that's a function of the branding. It's also a function of the marketing. You know, right. it's that first window. So you are the closest to that theatrical marketing mm-hmm. and thus are potentially most impacted by right. that. And I've heard, you know, some studios are better at this than others. I've heard Universal is doing especially great with their movies because they're aggressively putting these movies on premium video on demand. Um, close to when they are in theaters and they are owned by Comcast, which has an incentive to push it on mm-hmm. its platforms. So that that's a, that's a very lucrative window. And it's one that cer- some studios take advantage of more than others. Right. And so, and they were still playing with it. it started in um, mm-hmm. during COVID where they were uh, tightening or collapsing those windows, not to nothing, but they were, they were collapsing them from like 90 days, 45 days to 17 days. And then if yeah. it hit a certain box office, they'd extend it. Right. Mario Mario was not on premium video on demand right away. They waited on that. Yes, yeah. because if it hit at like a $50 million after a certain date, then they would extend it. Right. Okay. So that's the that's the first window there. Then it goes where? Then it goes to SVOD, the subscription streaming services like Netflix, Peacock, the others. So it's so EST and and video on demand are first, and then mm-hmm. then it goes to SVOD, which are the streaming platforms, and those work off of rate cards. So it's as best to a revenue share because you're not buying it on demand. It's off a rate card, usually a studio. So in this case, Paramount. We'll continue with the example of of Dead Reckoning. They mm-hmm. probably have a rate card at their streaming platform, more than likely Paramount Plus, um, and they are working off that rate card. Based what what on do you box mean by up. a rate card? So they will determine the price that they pay for that film on their platform based mm-hmm. on a box office number. So box office drives everything. So see, that's what people don't realize is that it's important how much you gross worldwide for the ultimates in the other windows, because it's all determined based on box office, not all, but a lot right. of it. And it takes a while for a studio to create the ultimate because Money's still coming in, and they're settling, you know, with all these various windows to determine, uh, and P&A, right? It's, it's P&A takes a while to account for, mm-hmm. but they take some time after the movie's been released to determine what is our ultimate? What do we think, how, how do we think this movie is going to perform over the next 10 years? And that's really was initially used by these studios for accounting and gap purposes, for reporting. But um, but when you, when you refer to ultimate, yeah. So there's a determination made based on box office what the rate will be to pay for it on the streaming service even if it's owned by the studio that released the movie you have to do that for the various profit participants correct because more than likely you know, tom cruise and 
And Chris McQuarrie's contracts say, we're going to do arm's length negotiations with whoever the downstream buyers are in order to, even if that happens to be Paramount Global, Paramount Plus, right. excuse me. Right. And that's where you get into litigation. I used to work on this stuff when I was a lawyer. And there was an example of this last week where the financier of Avatar 2 sued Disney because there was some alleged self-dealing there. And specifically, the license fee to put Avatar 2 on HBO, where the Fox output deal was, was diminished significantly so that Disney could also put Avatar 2 on Disney Plus and Hulu. And they either forgot or forgot on purpose to credit the financier of the movie with that change so that they would be made whole for the purposes of profit participation and hence litigation. Uh, but that's that's a separate. So let's go back. So this movie is on Paramount Plus or it's going to be on Paramount Plus soon. And there's a fee associated with that. And that goes into the overall pie of what the movie is generating. Um, where does it go from there? Well, we you know we will have some free television that will come off too. So it'll be sold. When you say you know it'll be on Paramount Plus, it'll also be on other streaming, more than likely other streaming platforms outside the United States where Paramount Plus does not have a big footprint. It'll mm -hmm. go on free television, and the windowing is, is will happen. So it'll be on, let's say, pay what we call pay one, right? So streaming pay one is going to be on for, let's say, 90 days, and then it'll come off, and it'll go down a few other windows, and then it'll come back to that platform, pay two. So right. it 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 comes on and off, and the people in distribution at Paramount and all the studios, much smarter than I am, and very good adept at this, at moving things in and out of windows and on and off services to maximize value. Yeah, that's the history of the business, is that these companies make their money, squeeze as much revenue out of these movies as possible in the various windows. That's why the rush to streaming over the past five to 10 years to compete with Netflix and to put it on one service and keep it there forever and have, you know, hoarding all this content on your own platform, that ultimately proved to not be the most lucrative and sane way to exploit entertainment for everyone except Netflix. And that's where we're seeing the retreat over the past year or two and the aggressive windowing of content. That's why you went on Netflix this morning and saw Ballers there, an HBO show, because HBO knows that they can window their content. And Ballers is a show that's been off the air for years and they're still making money on license. So that that's the, the larger industry trend. But going back to the specifics here, Mission Impossible will then take its journey through the winding road of television around the world for the next few years. But we also have the interesting thing about Mission Impossible, which is, I think the jury's out, which is you have Mission Impossible 8, Dead Reckoning 2, right, is right. coming out. And so what will happen? Dead Reckoning 1, part 1, will be re-released, maybe theatrically, maybe not, certainly on EST, certainly on video on demand, and will come back on to streaming for pay three or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. And so it'll have a new life. So that's the beauty of this. And it's also part of a franchise. Look at the, the Bond franchise. It's been around for 40, 50 years, okay, the Bond franchise. Yep. And we are still watching the early franchise, the early franchise movies of Bond. You can't watch. And the same thing will happen for Mission Impossible. Is it as big of a, a franchise as Bond? Probably not. But 
people keep going back to it, especially when new titles are released. They keep re-enjoying. Same thing with the Rocky titles. People go back to it. So there's always life breathed into these things. And all the platforms, whether it's domestically or internationally, want to have these franchises on their platform. Yeah, and there's a game that takes place. If you are a buyer of these titles, you're trying to game it so you get the best value in putting the title that's going to be big on your service at the right time. You know, the, right. Dis Disney went above and beyond to get all the Indiana Joneses on Disney Plus in the run-up to the new one because they knew there would be a spike in demand. And from everything I've heard of Disney, there was. They're even saying that, yeah, the movie may have bombed in theaters, but that's another ancillary benefit that you get from making a new Indiana Jones movie is you make a bunch of money based on the viewership, or you, at least you get higher viewership on Disney plus because of those other movies. And there's a right. bunch of other reasons why you make new movies. I remember when Disney decided to make cars three with the Pixar sequel, they didn't do cars three because cars two was a huge success. It actually was a disappointment. They did it because they knew that the consumer products business associated with cars was gigantic. And there was a, it was almost like a lost leader. Now cars three ended up doing okay, but they made a bunch of money on consumer products because that's a huge title. Same thing. Why? I mean, Disney's doing another Tron movie. The last Tron didn't do great. It did like 400 million worldwide, but they're building Tron roller coasters at the parks. And they know that a new Tron movie will juice interest there. I have to like that movie a lot, Tron. I <laughs> like the remake a lot. And and you bring a good point up with licensing merchandise. That's part of the waterfall, right? That's part yeah. of the water that gets built up that then as expenses like distribution expense, distribution fee, P&A, all that comes as you pay that back um, that uh, that comes off the waterfall. So that's that's And an they don't do component. that anymore, but you've seen a bunch of profit participation deals from the 80s and 90s. How much, how often does the talent get cut in on things like consumer products. Remember, there's the story of Johnny Depp getting a piece of the merchandise for pirates. Um, what are, are there other stories like that of people who have made tons of money off of that? Well, yes. Um, I mean, it's everyone, it's all about leverage, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if you have the leverage, you can negotiate. Sometimes it's the same pot, right? So you have a piece of it, but it's all thrown into the same pot. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's a separate pot if you have leverage. And sometimes if you're Steven Spielberg, you get a piece of Universal Studios uh, theme parks. Oh my God. Is that still happening? That's the greatest deal. I've asked Bruce Raymer, his lawyer, about that. Bruce obviously will never tell me. But the fact that Spielberg gets a piece of the gate at Universal Studios, it's got to be the greatest deal in the history of Hollywood. Well, it certainly was a deal. And whether or not it's still there or he's been bought out, I, I don't know. They the may have bought him out. They may Bruce Raymer is a great attorney, super smart. And, <laughs> uh, and Steven Spielberg has certainly benefited from that. But, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so there are, right. I think there are a lot of people there. I don't say there are a lot of people. There are certain people who do have merchandising uh, as a component of their less. So these days I've heard Disney doesn't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the one person who might get it would be someone like John Favreau mm -hmm. who kind of reinvented star Wars for streaming, but I doubt he even gets it uh, yeah. to ask him. This episode is brought to you by state farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This is all going into a pot, as you mm-hmm. said. Yeah. And there are profit participants. Let's use Mission again. Tom Cruise, Chris McQuarrie, they get a percentage of this revenue. Where does their percentage come in? Because there is, you know, lawyers who do this, they know that there's, you know, there is gross participants. There are net proceeds participants. It's all based on leverage. Assuming Tom Cruise is the very top of the heap, where does his cut come in? You know, I, I don't know about his deal specifically. I can't speak to let's it. Let's assume Obviously, it's a gross deal. Let's assume it's a gross deal. Well, it's a gross deal. Then it comes off the top, right? Money comes in to the studio, not as, at box office. So money comes right. in. That's studio. what people assume. They see $1.5 for Top Gun, and they say, oh, Tom Cruise gets a piece of that. No, no, he does not. He gets a piece of what the studio takes in. Exactly. And then others have different definitions. So some people have a definition at a distribution fee of X. And someone may have a distribution fee of Y. Some people get it after cash break, meaning after just the cash that has been put out gets recouped. Mm -hmm. And others have it on a net basis. Uh, So it all depends. Everyone has different definitions. And um, cash break seems to have become the norm, at least in the pre-Netflix era, just because the studios wanted to avoid situations like Tom Cruise had in the 2000s where his deal was giving him a piece of gross and the studio would actually lose money on the movie, but Tom Cruise would make money. They wanted to avoid those situations. Um, and and I think that's where the cash break became the popular. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, th- I think that that's where it came from, yes. And then the Netflix of it all, the you know the fact that the studios are moving away from these situations and to the buyout model, that's not great for you. You probably don't love that. Yeah, it's it's sort of there is no participation for us to buy, but right. there are participations have been going on since uh, Winchester seventy one. You know, which is an old Jimmy Stewart movie, which was he. I think he, Lou Wasserman of all people, such a smart man, he negotiated for his then client jimmy stewart to get 50 percent of the movie and that was made like in the late 50s early 60s so participations have been being you know given to uh as contingent compensation to artists for you know 60 years more or more right and they can be incredibly lucrative um if if it's the right kind of movie obviously sometimes you have to audit but the back out the 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 buyout model that has taken over streaming and Disney has adopted this for a lot of their movies, not some of the you know some of the bigger theatrical releases, but the buyout model is controversial now. It's at the center of the strikes because people are kind of wondering whether they have foregone their futures by taking more money up front. As someone who looks at this money a lot and knows how things have generated revenue down the line. What do you think when you see buyouts? Do you shake your head and say, man, you're giving up your future? Or do you understand that for the vast majority of people, getting that up front is probably going to be more than they ever get? I think I think it is the latter, because, uh, as much as I hate to say it, because mm-hmm. I do love these stories of those creators who have 
you know, created these incredible franchises that generate billions of dollars and they get to share in that. And uh, but those are so few and far between that that happens. Happening right now on Barbie, Greta Gerwig. That, yeah. By the way, and Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie, fifty million dollars, right? That, by the way, that's low. That is ridiculously low. I, I heard it's way higher. That, that there was a Variety report that she's going to get fifty million dollars in Barbie. It's actually right. more than that. Well, I, I think that that's great, right? That's fantastic. But I think where you really saw these windfalls less so on the feature side is more on TV, right? When you had a, t a TV show go 100 episodes, sure. that was what everyone hoped for. It gets to 100 episodes, it goes into first runs, it goes into off-network syndication, and then you have Seinfeld, Friends, The Office, you know, these crazy participate, Cosby Show, you know, big participations uh, that generated literally billions of dollars in sales. Uh, that's not happening anymore. And I think yesterday, uh, Ken Ziffern had his uh, annual talk. and I saw he, that. And, and he said something like, I think, his clients, I'm going to paraphrase this, his clients would rather get, know they get something, a little of something in success, as opposed to have a very small chance of having, you know, a huge windfall. Yeah, and, he's basically yeah. saying they want the buyout model because they're the doubles are fine with most clients. They're not going to get the home runs, but the doubles are fine. Exactly. And that's interesting because he's represented some of those people who have the giant windfalls and have the 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 Malibu Beach house, not the you know hill the the house in the Beverly Hills flats. Exactly. Right. He represented Stephen J. Cannell, you know, who made all those you know great TV shows of the seventies and eighties, and uh, and owned his shows back when you could own television shows and a number of other people. But yeah, it's it, the world is the times have changed, the world's changed, the models changed, and um, you know, I get it. Yeah. Singles and doubles. And so I think that that's, that's what I would do. And I think the model's changing. As you said, you're seeing ballers go from, you know, HBO only onto Netflix, which means that these walled gardens are coming down. They're trimming the hedges a little bit and, um, and they're letting some of the stuff out. And hopefully that means that there'll be more participations or there'll be a different way of calculating or, there will be back ends going going forward in a certain way. Uh, it's to be determined. All right, so let's bring this home to Mission Impossible. Yeah, and I don't want to make you make a prediction, but let's make a prediction. Is this movie going to end up in the black? I don't know that we'll ever know that because obviously they won't release that. <laughs> uh, yeah. But will this movie make in the black for the studio? The studio is going to make money. I just believe it. I just believe the studio will I make think money. So too. Yeah, I think so too. I think with all the potential revenue and all the other things they can do with it, um, I think that this movie will end up being profitable, even with that exorbitant cost. Um, we'll see on the next one. Hopefully they can bring down the cost in the next one a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think COVID really hurt them. Obviously, the budget went way up during COVID. They were trying to film that. That really added to it. And it was a mm -hmm. big movie, right? But right. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Uh, Indiana Jones, probably not. Making only three three hundred and whatever it's at right now right. on a budget of more than three hundred, like that's tough. Probably not. Um, and don't forget PNA. Don't forget a lot of PNA on that too. That was spent. Right. I had one question. Stuff like EST and PVOD that is not factored into the the public box office revenue that we see online, right? No, no, no. You never see that. Do you think it should be? I don't. I don't know that they ever want to report that. Like they they don't want even the participants to know much. Okay. They, they try to hide as much as possible. So transparency to viewers. I just don't think the studios want to do that. I think it would be great if they did. Universal did a story with the New York times where they said something like they'd made a hundred million dollars on, 
on Peabot or that Universal has been aggressive in getting that messaging out there. Wouldn't Paramount want that to show that Mission Impossible wasn't as big of a bomb as everybody thought? Yeah, that's why they like it sometimes, because the narrative on certain movies is that it di- they don't make money, but they want to say, oh, but we did make money. Yeah, I was, I was saying more like the licensing and merchandising. I, I agree. I think that's a pretty interesting idea, which is make PVOD and EST, which is like now I'm watching it at home, right? It's yeah. like, you know, watching the movie theater because is they should release it and it would demonstrate just how successful a film is right yeah it feels like we need to expand what falls under the box office revenue umbrella and and you could like the dividing line is rev share right box office is rev share right it's 90 10 you know 80 20 30 70 whatever it might be over time and est is the same thing 95 10 or 85 15 whatever it might be it's uh or 95 5 85 15 whatever it might be and yeah maybe interesting idea yeah I think that would be great. Uh, the other one is the inflation on box office reporting. Like people, yes, they say, oh, not adjusted for inflation, but all these records that are being broken, you know, Barbie is the biggest movie. It, it passed the dark night. Well, yeah, that's 15 years of inflation since 2008 when the dark night came out. So I really think admissions <laughs> is what we should really be focused on because yeah. you also have different ticket prices all over the, you know, are you in a matinee or not? Oh, you mean just number of tickets sold? Yeah, because that really tells you, depending on whatever year it is, you know, it's saying, hey, this thing was really popular. You know, right. 20 million people went and saw it. The, the, but that would never, the, the narrative on that would be down, down, down. And that's not what the studios No, like. no, Plus, the studios don't want to do that, right? Movies like Oppenheimer, I mean, 30% of the Oppenheimer business in this country is coming from IMAX, which charges a lot more per seat than the other theaters. So, they like the big number for Oppenheimer without having to say that, oh yeah, the admissions for that movie are actually much lower. All right. Appreciate the time. Thanks, John, for coming on. Thank you. Take care. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, it happened. We need to tell everybody about our Netflix Bites culinary experience. We went to the Netflix pop-up restaurant yesterday and I've, I've, I've told you to hold your hot take. Give me your hot take on the Netflix pop-up restaurant. I don't have any hot takes. I thought the food was very good, but uh, and, and the venue was like eating in a funhouse. It was like eating in the Netflix lobby is what it was like. There's like pictures of all the food talent on the walls. There's like the Netflix logos everywhere. Very colorful. Yes. It, it, for those who don't know, this is a pop-up thing that Netflix is doing this summer to promote its food programming where they have a restaurant and all of the Netflix chefs from the rest from the shows have curated dishes. Uh, Curtis Stone is not behind the pots in the kitchen, but he has selected a recipe that they are making and it's fun. It's a great idea. I mean, Netflix does this a lot. They've done, you know, these experiential things. They have a Bridgerton costume ball that people apparently go to, which Sounds a little like my nightmare fourth grade cotillion class, but apparently it's very popular. They did a Stranger Things experience where people could go and like have a Halloween thing with Stranger Things. And this is their version of theme parks. They don't have theme parks. So they try to engage their audience with these pop-up things. And this one works. I was into it. I'm a fan of eventizing food IP, kind of turning the most famous food from television and movies or whatever into sort of a high-end dining experience. I oh, actually- so you're gonna go to like the you're gonna go to like the Golden Girls restaurant or like the 90210 Peach Pit recreation thing well, that they've done? If it's just kind of like a cheap cash grab, no. But it, you know, this restaurant, because it was backed by like renowned chefs making these dishes, I felt 
comfortable going. And if they continued that trend with others, you know, famous food IP, I'd, I'd be interested. They're doing one with Family Guy where you go and play like Family Guy golf. And then you can drink at the Drunken Clam bar that they are recreating in downtown LA. Yeah, see, that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it for me. <laughs> That's not for me. Uh, so overall, overall, our, our first restaurant review on the town, we're giving thumbs up to the Netflix Bites restaurant. Thumbs up. Let us know where we should try next. Yeah, seriously. I know the others need to get in on this game. Um, all right, but that is not my prediction today. We're doing box office because we've got two big movies this weekend. We've got Blue Beetle, the DC Warners movie. And the tracking on that one is actually, it's a little, I, I th for some reason, I thought this was going to totally bomb when I first saw the trailer. Tracking's at about 27, 28, and the reviews have been surprisingly decent. So you're taking the over? I'm going to take the over. I think it'll come in the low 30s. I think that they've done a, a good job, like, uh, mobilizing the, lat the Latino audience for this. It's all Latino cast. Um, Zolo Maradueno is the star from Cobra Kai. So I think that they're going to surprise people here. And and my kid was into it. He wants to see it. And that's uh, he doesn't always want to see these superhero movies. So I'm going to take the over on that. There needs to be something to follow up Barbenheimer. It's been a bummer that there really hasn't been a movie that could like feed off of that enthusiasm of going to the theaters. It's been like, what, a month yeah. since those came out? I'm not very bullish on superhero movies in general. So you take the under. Yeah, I'm going to take the under. Oh, wow. Okay. Maybe you're right. I don't know. Maybe maybe Barbie. I mean, it's going to be a fight for number one. Barbie's been number one for four weeks in a row. Uh, so maybe it's just a Barbie Oppenheimer summer and everything else is going to fall away. But we'll see. Uh, Ninja Turtles did okay. And that's a movie. This movie, Blue Beetle, was only $125 million, about half the cost of The Flash. They don't need to do a huge number. But, um, you know, they, they want this to play for the rest of the month. Uh, the other one this weekend is Strays. The mm. talking R-rated talking dog movie with Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx, who cannot promote it. Um, that tracking is at about 17 million. I'm going to take the under on that. I just don't think this one's hitting. It's not resonating. The reviews are okay, but it's like uh, R-rated comedies, tough. We've talked about that a million times. I don't know where this one's going to land, but I think under 17. I mean, yeah, the tracking on No Hard Feelings it, it was like 10 million. And that one did okay. That one opened to 15, at least according, you know, better than the tracking. Um, Cocaine Bear, still the R-rated champ for the year, opened to 23 million earlier this year uh. for R-rated comedies. <laughs> <laughs> what dystopian world are we living in? Listen, you know what? It You knew exactly what it was when you heard it. You, it's an amazing title and they marketed it well. And Strays, I think, you know, it's like, my my kid like seemed to be interested, but like obviously he can't see it, so it's uh, it's a little bit tougher. All right, that's the show. I want to thank my guest John Mass. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, and I want to thank you. Only two shows this week, so that's why we went a little long. We will see you next week. Mm -hmm.